Chair, staff is ready when you are. Great. Uh, let's go ahead and call this meeting of the Law and Legislation Committee to order. Uh, Madam Clerk, please call the roll to establish a quorum. Thank you. Councilmember Guerra? Uh, here. Councilmember Harris is expected momentarily. Councilmember Valenzuela? Here. And Chair Chenier? I am here. Uh, let's go ahead and ask Ms. Hernandez to uh, do the land acknowledgement and lead us in the pledge. Okay, please rise for the opening acknowledgements in honor of Sacramento's indigenous people and tribal lands. To the original people of this land, the Nisanon people, the Southern Maidu, Valley and Plains Miwok, Putwin Wintoon peoples, and the people of the Wilton Rancheria, Sacramento Federal, federally recognized tribe. May we acknowledge and honor the native people who came before us and still walk beside us today in, on these ancestral lands by choosing to gather today in the active practice of acknowledgement and appreciation for Sacramento's indigenous people's history, contributions, and lives. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, and the Pledge of Allegiance, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands one nation under God with liberty and justice for all. Thank you, Consuelo. Appreciate that. Uh, let's go ahead uh, and move. Is Mr. Harris with us yet? Yes, he's joined us. Great. All right, let's go ahead and move to the consent calendar. I actually have a couple comments on number five, but any other comments from members of the committee? I have a question on item one, Chair. Okay, go ahead. Oh, okay. I was just curious if the staff had a status update on item eight, which was Mayor Pertam Guerra's digital billboard item. I got some questions about that. and was just curious where that was at. Ms. Hernandez or? I, I can um, check with staff and get back to you. Well, thank you. Okay. And there's a, there's you know, the city of uh, staff, if I recall, is doing an RFP at the moment to get the research on what other cities have done, and then that's that would be coming back to us. Thank you. Okay. Any other comments? So, just on on item five on the consent calendar, uh, this committee and then the council voted to move forward with a proposal to be able to put uh, different tax rates up to four percent on different sectors of the cannabis industry. What we've learned since then is that we actually have the ability to do that without going to the ballot, which is great. Uh, it means one less ballot measure for, for folks to have to vote on. Um, what I'd like to do is bring that item back in the fall uh, when we know what's happening with the feds uh, as far as taxes on cannabis. And we can make some, um, have a discussion about what we'd like those tax rates to be and then send it on to council. So at this point, there's nothing that we need to do. Um, um, but again, in the fall, once the federal government finishes its uh, taxes, we will, and budget, we will see where we are and what we need to do. So with that, I would look for a motion on the consent calendar. I'll move consent. Okay. I'll second. I have a motion and a second. Uh, Madam Clerk, please call the roll. So Chair, I do have one hand raised to make comments. Michael Alt. I'm sorry. 
Michael Alt. I think that might be on item six. Uh, it's not on. The, it's not on this issue. It's on the next one. Thank you. Okay. All right. So go ahead and please call the roll then. Councilmember Gatta. Aye. Councilmember Harris. Aye. Councilmember Valenzuela. Yes. And Chair Chenier. Okay, so that passes unanimously. Um, let me just say, logistics-wise, um, well, where are we on public comment for item six, Madam Clerk? So, Chair, I have two, uh, three hands raised. Oh, okay, I know we've gotten a lot of comment. Uh, all right, we'll see um, about whether we can make it through all three of these items. And there's no one else coming into the room until uh, closed session, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. All right. Let's go with item six then. Um, we have staff, staff, and and Councilmember Harris presenting this. Yeah. Thank you, Chair. I believe um, Michael Benner from the City Attorney's Office uh, is here. I hope he's here. Mr. Benner, are you available? Am I on? There you You're go. On. There we go. You're on and your screen is black. So oh, you're, hold on. The, you're the mystery. There we go. Got it. You're good. I think I haven't done this before. All right. It's the first time for everything, Mr. I, I know, right? Uh, good afternoon, members of the Law and Legislation Committee. I'm Mike Benner, Senior Deputy City Attorney with the Sacramento City Attorney's Office. Today, I'm presenting proposed amendments to Sacramento City Code Chapter 12.24, otherwise known as the Sidewalk Ordinance. Besides a reorganization of the sidewalk ordinance, the sidewalk ordinance to modernize it, the, these proposed amendments make three substantive changes to the chapter. Number one, it prevents individuals from blocking ingress and egress to building entrances. Number two, uh, the existing law, as it's currently written, requires enforcement by a peace officer. The proposed changes allow for enforcement by the city manager or his or her designee. And number three, it elevates the uh, violation level to a misdemeanor from its current infraction level. It's also important to note that note that like the existing ordinance, voluntary compliance must be sought by the city prior to any criminal enforcement taking place. Okay, is that it? That's all I got. Okay. So thank you for, for denoting uh, those differences to our current ordinance. I'd like to explain to the committee why I brought this forward. Uh, you know, and in, in, I don't know what your experience is as council members, but I get emails every day, every day, asking me for help in mitigating the impacts of homelessness. Uh, recently, I've gotten a tremendous amount of correspondence about blocked sidewalks, such that pedestrians, kids on their way to school, uh, even cyclists, have to go well out into the travel lane of traffic to get around homeless encampments. So I'd like to preface this by saying I do not see this as criminalization of homelessness, but what I do see it is as, as are most of our ordinance and laws, behavior modification. Uh, this is not about moving campers. It's about asking them to keep a clear line of travel on our sidewalks, which I think is not only reasonable, but actually imperative so that, you know, all of our community can have safe travel on our sidewalks. It's just really basic common sense. 
Now there is an enforcement component here because that is the only way you can modify behavior. You may hear from people from Mesa, like McKinley SAC advocates who have relationships with the homeless population and ask them to move and create space on the sidewalk. Some comply and many don't. And it's the ones that don't that really need, we need to make it clear to them that homeless individuals like everybody else housed and guests otherwise really have to buy into the social contract and agree that, you know, we have to have safety for everybody in the city. Uh, so that's really the essence of the ordinance is just simply to create safe passage and safety. I don't think it's an extraordinary ask of the homeless population to do so. And as I said, many will simply comply when asked. And of course, as Michael pointed out in this ordinance, uh, they must first be asked politely to comply. But if there's belligerence or if they, you know, simply do not want to comply, we do have an enforcement mechanism to make it to make it happen. Mindy, did, were you able to capture that video and show a piece of it? I don't have a link to that video. Uh, I did send it to you, and I thought you said you had it ready to go. Uh, let me see what I can find. Well, anyway, what I was going to show you was a video from the River District. Uh, there was a fire the other day, a couple weeks ago, actually, as there is almost every day in the River District that happened in homeless camps. In this particular situation on North A Street, the homeless camp not only completely occluded the sidewalk, but about half of the travel lane on North A Street. Now, you know, this is, it creates very unsafe conditions. In this particular camp, there was a bike shop shop and the fire was started, they had a propane cylinder that blew up. Uh, it caught a smug pole on fire, which created quite a bit of damage. This ordinance would help us manage situations like that. Again, it's not about simply kicking homeless out of an area. It's saying, okay, be a good citizen. If you're going to sleep here, make sure that our sidewalk is safe and passable. Um, it's a pretty instructive video. I, I can tell you this, uh, committee members, if you walked around the River District for one hour, you would understand exactly why I want to bring this ordinance. Or if you just walked under the underpasses in East Sac and saw that although those sidewalks are like 11 to 14 feet wide, they're completely occluded by homeless tents and possessions. And it is not necessary for it to be that way. So any luck, Mindy? have located I just need to get it on the right um, yeah, give me one moment while we're waiting chair is it okay if I ask Michael a quick question yeah uh, go ahead well let, let me say one thing really quickly is as far as public comment goes and I know those numbers are rising uh, once the second public comment speaker has spoken we'll close the roll at that point so if you want to make a public comment uh, you should raise your hand now or by the time the second speaker is finished. Let's go to uh, Councilmember Valenzuela. Thank you, uh, Michael. I just have a, a quick technical question. I'll save my comments for after public comment. Um, under current city code, we can, PD can ask people to, to clear four feet on the sidewalk, correct? That is correct. Let me pull up the violation okay. section. No, that's fine. Yeah. I just was curious if we already had that on the books. Thank you, Michael. 
Yeah, so to that end, um, Councilmember Valenzuela, the change that Michael denoted here is that it also protects entrances to businesses, which are not currently yeah. uh, in the code. And um, I guess then a follow-up question to Michael, are entrances to businesses covered under the American Disability Act regulation saying you can't block? Not that we have discovered that's enforceable by us. Not that's enforceable by us, but there are rules around entrances. I, I can't speak to that one way. Okay. I haven't done the research on that, so. Okay, thank you. Councilmember Valenzuela, this is uh, Susanna Wood, and I know that that was exactly what we were aligning our code with so that um, it would not create any additional uh, standards and we could follow the ADA requirements. Perfect. Thank you, Susanna. Mandy, any luck? I do have that video. Let me share screen. Okay, thank you. So uh, what you're seeing here was a piece that was broadcast on KCRA. Well, just across from the Blue Diamond plant, right next to the uh, Pipeworks uh, facility here is where uh, a lot of folks are camped out here on A Street and fire crews that are just wrapping up over at Blue Diamond are now heading over here because this encampment is on fire and uh, clearly out of control here this morning. You can see the battalion chief here on A Street. He's already parked next to it and has called his crews that Again, we're no sooner packing up their hoses over at the Blue Diamond facility and now coming over here to deal with this uh, fire burning at this uh, encampment here along A Street. So if you see a dark plume of black smoke right on A Street, that is what is on fire now just across from the Blue Diamond plant. Nothing to do. They're completely unrelated, clearly. But uh, again, an issue here for crews that are now heading over this way to 16th and A Street. So avoid this area. Whoa, look at that. That's a, a propane tank. Looks like it's off-gassing right there. Wow. Listen to that sound. My goodness. All right, so uh, that's a uh, propane tank there that's uh, purging. As, uh, again, they're continuing to battle this fire here. That's not something you see every day and no. not something I want to yeah. see this close you, every day, I was day, just going to say, I mean, we want to ask you questions, but do you guys, a serious question, do you guys need to back up? No, we're okay. We're obviously okay. zoomed in on it, so we're, we're far enough back, but uh, that is a uh, okay. uh, fire. So, that so Mindy, that, that, that will be sufficient as far as the video goes. Thank you for showing that. You know, I brought that forward because I deal with this every day in the River District and in East Sacramento. Uh, I mean, literally every day. You could see that that encampment was not tidy. It was not confined. It was sprawling all the way into halfway into the lane of travel. Uh, you know, we've cleaned up this area numerous times, um, and yet it comes back. So it's about, in my opinion, behavior modification. Nobody in this city is above the law, whether they're housed or unhoused. And it's about just buying into the social contract that we all live under to keep our city safe and passable. You know, doing this ordinance, I believe, will support our businesses in a big way, which supports our tax base and makes it possible for us to have, you know, the money that we need to deal with homeless issues and create alternatives for people on the street. So those are my comments. Maybe, Chair, we can go to public comment now, and then um, we can all discuss this afterwards. Great. Thank you. Uh, we have about 10 comments. And again, um, by the second person, if you want to make a comment, please go ahead and, and raise your hand. Uh, we'll start with Mr. Alt, and then I'll turn it over to Mindy uh, after that. 
good afternoon, committee members. Michael Alt uh, with the Downtown Sacramento Partnership. Uh, we appreciate the committee bringing forward these tools to assist with the managing the, the public realm. But needless to say, uh, the impact on our streets are, are significant at this point, and we absolutely need some assistance in managing some of the uh, behavioral challenges. Uh, oftentimes, our residents, our businesses, our employees and visitors encounter obstructions that impact business operations and create candidly unsafe pathways uh, in our pedestrian areas. And we fully understand there needs to be a balanced approach to addressing safety measures downtown, providing the means to reduce unnecessary divergence for businesses uh, with access for ADA and pedestrian travel. So when considering this ordinance, we recommend really a cross-departmental implementation for enforcement, providing alternative support for outreach and the capacity for our public partners. Uh, the current state of downtown requires support for increased safety measures that enhance the quality of life for residents, visitors, and employees. And we recognize this is only one step in addressing these safety concerns of the community, and we stand ready to work with you uh, and your partners to ensure the accessibility and safety for all of us. Uh, we need some additional support, and we think this tool uh, will be added uh, and help us as we move forward. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Next speaker is Kimberly Cargile. Good day, Council. My name is Kimberly Cargile. I'm a business owner on H Street. And I'm here today to ask for your support of businesses and residents here in Sacramento to provide safe sidewalks. I'd like to start by saying that I feel a tremendous amount of compassion for those that are homeless. My business, a therapeutic alternative, used to do homeless outreach on a monthly basis, taking food, toiletries, sleeping bags, and hugs to the homeless people while picking up trash in nearby parks for many, many years. Due to the escalation of violence, we can no longer provide this service at the expense of my employees' safety. It's with a heavy heart that our new company policy is that employees are not allowed to come within 10 feet of homeless persons. And this is due to numerous attacks on our employees while on their 10-minute break or while opening up or um, <clears throat> on break lunches. This makes it really hard for employees to take walks on their 10-minute breaks or lunch breaks. Over the last few years, um, the violence has escalated and our security handles unsafe situations for our business and for our neighbors for our entire block on a daily basis. I worry mostly about the children that are walking to and from school and therefore we have teamed up with Mesa's Yellow Brick Road Project to have our security guards do security walks during the morning and afternoon um, times when children are walking to and from school. We really need the city's help on this um, situation as um, it is becoming very unsafe for residences and business um, owners and employees in this part of the town. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kimberly. Next speaker is Daniel Savala. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Daniel Savala, Executive Director of Del Paso Boulevard Partnership here in District 2. Um, first and foremost, I, I just want to start by saying that there shouldn't be a divide or this dichotomy that one comes without the other. We can protect storefronts and the sidewalks on a daily basis here on Del Paso Boulevard. We deal with the unhoused population and we try to move as compassionately as we can to find folks the right resources and to get them out of the out of the storefronts where they're sleeping in the morning sometimes. We recognize that, that it's a big challenge. Um, 
by enacting this ordinance or moving this forward, um, that doesn't necessarily mean we're criminalizing it. Um, it just is giving us the tool that we desperately need to help support the small businesses in a quarter like El Paso. But with that, and that same commitment to helping our small businesses, um, the same should be said for opening shelters immediately. We've had more than a year go by without adequate shelter space being open temporarily or permanently near Del Paso Boulevard. Um, I urge the committee to continue the discussion moving forward on both. Lastly, um, I'd like to see the, the, this move forward to the city council for uh, for further discussion, but also note that the, the on increasing the penalty to a misdemeanor, um, I don't really support that aspect of it, but we need to do more. We need to give, whether it be law enforcement or whether it be the Office of Community Response, tools that they need to help support the small businesses here on Del Paso Boulevard and other corridors throughout Sacramento. Um, business owners and property owners have spoken. It's the number one issue that they deal with um, as small business owners here. So with that, I urge your support and move this forward, please, and thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Next speaker is Amy Gardner. Hello, thank you. This is Amy Gardner, and I am representing the Midtown ESAC Advocates, and I appreciate you all for giving us this opportunity to comment on item number six around the sidewalk ordinance. Um, as an advocate for the Midtown and ESAC neighborhoods, I'm asking for the council's support of agenda item six. Having sidewalks that anyone in the city can navigate is the most pedestrian of requests. As noted, the existing codes governing sidewalk obstructions are outdated. A four foot obstruction free area of all sidewalks allows everyone housed and unhoused, fully mobile or those with mobility issues to get around our city. It is the city's responsibility to have clean and safe routes for everyone and anyone who chooses to walk or roll around the city. I have been pushing for safe routes to school in our area. I also push for it for the whole city. This amendment, the sidewalk ordinance, will uh, help us get kids to and from school safely and allow more people to travel on foot, bike or scooter to the parks, pools, senior centers, libraries and other city amenities in our community. Mesa will continue to work with the city to help find solutions to the problems we are having on our streets. And we appreciate your support of this ordinance. Thank you. And please make our neighborhood safe for everyone, young and old. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Emily Bame Michaels. Good afternoon. This is Emily Bame Michaels calling on behalf of the Midtown Association. I'm calling regarding item six. I wanna thank this committee for considering this matter. We certainly acknowledge the complexities that we're addressing here and would like to share our perspective and position. We're speaking on this item from a couple different frames. One is as a direct health and human services provider, as well as a placemaker and economic development agency that's focused on active transportation and on our small business needs. We feel very strongly that we need housing and wraparound services for those that are unhoused. Um, it's obviously incredible and critical, and we know that so many of you and so many of our leaders in our community are working very hard on this issue and really wear it on their sleeves. We have a lot more to do. I think we all acknowledge that, and we are here to be a partner to continue to keep doing more, including weekly field-based outreach work with DCR and on a daily basis with our own team. In the meanwhile, our ask is that we stop allowing our doorways to be blocked to our businesses, allowing our cycling paths to be blocked, and stopping um, 
and allowing those with ADA needs access to um, life and safety ingress and egress um, in and out of buildings, regardless of their housing status. Our perspective is that we offer our full support to this ordinance and hope that it will advance. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker is Michelle Smira. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you, Michelle Smyra with the Earth Street Sacramento Partnership. I'm also a small business owner and a resident here in Sacramento. Uh, I concur with a lot of comments that have been made. And as the council has pushed so hard to get new supportive permanent um, shelters and housing in place, we're hoping that this is that opportunity for our businesses to be able to have another tool to keep their doors open and have their residents uh, coming in, their patrons coming in, and so we ask you to move this forward to the city council. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker is Brandon Black. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you this afternoon. This is Brandon Black, Director of Public Policy and Advocacy for the Sacramento Metro Chamber, calling in to support the proposed sidewalk ordinance. For so many reasons, we must ensure that everyone has the right to access and freely move around the city unimpeded. Businesses deserve the chance to serve customers, and we need to give them and their employees the resources to do so. Safety for pedestrians is of paramount import as well. Specifically for our friends and neighbors with disabilities, it is imperative that we follow the Americans with Disabilities Act and provide safe opportunities for access around Sacramento. This is a common sense safety measure, and we urge that it move forward to the full city council. Thank you for your time this afternoon. Thank you. Next speaker is Margot Ronaldo. Hi, uh, my name is Margot Ronaldo, and I am a resident of District 4 and calling today to represent the 500 members of the Sacramento Democratic Socialists of America. I urge members of this committee to vote no on this ordinance. This proposed ordinance has to be analyzed in light of two other proposals being considered right now. One at the state level, AB 2633, which would make it illegal for encampments on the American River Parkway, as well as the ballot measure in November, the Emergency Shelter and Enforcement Act. Both of these would legalize the criminalization of unhoused folks for simply existing on public property. All of these taken together demonstrate that the overwhelming approach by local electeds is not to address the underlying causes of poverty, but to eschew it out of sight and out of mind. Not only does this further, this, not only does this approach further marginalize people who desperately need access to community services, but it also wastes our tax dollars on measures that do nothing to solve the multiple crises our unhoused neighbors are dealing with. Real solutions to homelessness would include supporting robust and accessible public health care and housing options and designating the proper funding to match those priorities, both at the local and state levels. It is clear that many of you, either through your explicit support or uninspiring ambivalence to take a stand through robust policy alternatives, are fully giving into the social amnesia that refuses to acknowledge how rising levels of inequality and housing unaffordability are shaping the poverty we are seeing on our streets. As a resident of Sacramento, it is sad to say that the reactive impetus to privatize public spaces and criminalize poverty, reactions that are usually likened to more conservative politics, are alive and well in Sacramento. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker is Robert Copeland. I'm gonna have to agree with Margo on this. I mean, if if the city council would have done their job and helped the homeless population before I started going to city council, I mean, 
we would not have this. Uh, we would have a, a lot lower homeless population in Sacramento. I mean, get out the root cause of uh, homelessness. Uh, high cost of rent. I mean, really, the city council has failed the people in Sacramento. I read a report that uh, Sacramento is one of the top ten places to live that are that are that are anti-family. Why are we in a top ten a place where uh, families cannot live in the United States? Get your act together. Get housing for the homeless population. Get real services. And the police officers should not be going after the homeless population. They should be going after drug addicts, rapists, murderers, uh, home invasion. Get your act together. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Next speaker is Christina Rogers. Christina Rogers, if you'll unmute. Hi, my name is Christina Rogers. I agree with Councilman Harris. Nobody is above the law and I support this ordinance. Other marginalized and vulnerable communities are now being impacted by those who, is, who have taken over public spaces. Elderly children and disabled people should expect to walk, bike or take their wheelchair on any public sidewalk. Moving around public spaces is also a human right. And what happened to supporting ADA requirements? Why are you placing a homeless drug addict above a vet in a wheelchair or a blind person? Do you realize we have a large blind community? Imagine what it must be like for them right now. We cannot demand one group take spaces meant for the public. I believe the majority of homeless do not expect this and those who do should not be coddled. I noticed the people against this ordinance either dismiss or ignore the voices of those other marginalized groups who want clean, safe sidewalks. That doesn't make you an advocate, it makes you a bully. And no one is criminalizing homeless people. We all want balance. The extremist language constantly used to shut down common sense is pathetic. You cannot all, uh, you cannot support drug use and, and, and addicts. You can't allow it to blossom around our schools, parks, and neighborhoods. It's not compassionate to ignore filth, urine, and needles because you feel sorry for the addict. It is enabling and it is killing our communities. I support this ordinance. We can do both. We can help people in need and have clean, safe public spaces. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Nikki. Sure. Hey, y'all. My name is Nikki. I'm an outreach worker here in Sacramento, and I work with the Sacramento Homeless Organizing Committee. I do have a question. If we're all in this together for real solutions, uh, why aren't we looking at aggressively um, building housing for low and low income people? Why aren't we looking at uh, the inclusionary ordinance that this council dismantled? Why is it always restrictive measures on those living outside that these business interests support um, and move and bring forward. Um, there are plenty of real solutions that we could look at, solutions around storage of, of property, of trash pickup, of real sanitation and hygiene, of real, and we can say we've been working on it. I, God knows you've been talking about it, um, but we don't have uh, places or spaces 
um, for people to be living and therefore they are pushed to be living in public space. And we already have laws on the books to open sidewalks, um, particularly uh, for wheelchair access. And I think I hate this dichotomy of people, elders, children, people in wheelchairs versus those living outside, because I don't know if you've taken a look recently, but many elders, children, and those living in wheelchairs are also living outside on our sidewalks. So I think the key here is that this is an escalation of, yes, criminalization, folks. When you make harsher the criminal sanctions, that is criminalization. I don't know how to explain it any way that doesn't fall flat for you, um, except that interaction with police and not, not just uh, uh, coercive interaction, but even regular interaction um, where they're, quote, asking for an enforcement is criminalization. This constant, the social contract is already broken. These folks are living outside. Real safety for everyone would look like housing. And until we're there, uh, y'all are grasping at straws and it shows. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Rachel Brown. Uh, good afternoon, committee members. Uh, my name is Rachel Brown. I am the executive director for the Power and Alliance, which is in District 6. Uh, the Power and Alliance, for those of you that don't know, is the largest PBIT in the city of Sacramento, covering six square miles and including roughly 10,000 businesses. Uh, we are in support of this ordinance as a way to help our city improve safety and accessibility. Sidewalks are a public right-of-way and should be protected as a public amenity. Not only should the public have free and clear access on the sidewalks, but the sidewalks are the front door to our businesses. If the front door to these businesses is impeded, it causes issues for the property owner, business owner, and the public. Many of the businesses are struggling with their customers feeling safe because of the sidewalks being blocked. In conclusion, the Power and Alliance is in support of this additional tool to help our city improve the safety and accessibility to both our businesses and visitors. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Um, all right, I believe that's it for public comment. Is that correct, Ms. Cuppy? That's correct, I have no more hands raised. Great, let's go to the committee. Um, Council Member Valenzuela. Thank you, Chair, and thank you everybody for calling in. I just wanna start my comments by saying and making very clear that I don't think any of us have any problems here with ADA. Existing city law already covers sidewalks. I hear a lot of folks talking about sidewalks being blocked, sidewalks being blocked. I would argue that that is an issue of capacity. So one thing I do support in this ordinance is removing the requirement that it be the police that interact with folks who are blocking sidewalks. I think we also need to talk about increased resources for the Department of Community Response. I've had no issues working with them. I mean, the question under the freeways has always been a jurisdictional matter that we're in the almost done working out. But, you know, really, I, I've never had an issue with working with DCR to get someone to move their belongings so they're not blocking doorways or that they're leaving four feet of passable space. I mean, that has never really been an issue, but I do appreciate the city attorney making it clear in the code um, what isn't is not covered to be compliant with ADA. Um, so I really, I mean, those two changes here, I don't have any problem with blocking doorways. I get it. You know, having PD not be the ones who have to respond, I get it. The issue really is about increased punishment because um, not only is that not a solution, it actually increases barriers to getting people 
jobs and housed if and when they're able to do that because now they've got debt and records and things that they need to manage in order to get into that housing, to get into those jobs, to access those services. And it becomes an increasing challenge, which is not something that I think helps any of our goal, which is to get people a place to go. The reason this is an issue is because people don't have a place to go. And so I, I support those two changes. Um, I would like to, to move this ordinance. We're moving the misdemeanor um, clause and in, in, in the ordinance draft as is presented to us today. I just, I, I don't, <laughs> you know, we already have tools at our disposal and the real issue and the comments that I've been getting from folks are, well, look at this block sidewalk, look at that block sidewalk. This is a capacity challenge. And the change in this ordinance that the city attorney has brought forward to remove PD from being the necessary agency to um, enforce those changes is, is right. I think we need to, DCR has had great success working with camps throughout my district and the residential areas when they have the capacity to do so. And I don't see why we need to move away from that. I do think we need to increase our capacity to do that more regularly at particularly in areas where camps are growing and may and have a lot of transition in and out of that camp and may need continued reminders and coaching and assistance to store belongings, to get rid of trash, to deal with other issues that are impeding their ability to keep a four-foot clearance near their camp. So um, I just think that this is a uh, I mean, there is no evidence that increasing criminal enforcement is going to work. I think a lot of us hope that if we keep increasing criminal charges on people, that eventually they'll just leave. Um, but that's not going to happen. Um, what they'll do is they'll move to the river or they'll move to a different business district or they'll move somewhere else. People don't disappear. Um, and really, all we're doing is making it harder for us to achieve all of our common goal of getting people into the services and housing that they need. So, um, Chair, that's that's my motion is, is to move this without the, the misdemeanor clause in this ordinance. And um hoping that we can have that discussion at the council and that my colleagues will understand that this is the most expensive thing we can do is continue to pursue more criminal work. If we were focused more on housing and shelter and safe camping sites, we would be moving in the same direction. And all of us want that to move forward as quickly as possible. So just putting that out there and hope for a second that that can be the move here today. Thank you, Chair. Right. If okay, Ms. Ellenswell, if we can listen to the other committee members and then see if there's a second or how, how we want to go direction-wise. Mr. Guerra. Uh, thank you, Mr. Uh, Chair. I, I got a question here for Mr. Brennan. Um, the current current right now infraction, the current right now is an infraction for, um, for uh, someone who's blocking the sidewalk. Uh, <clears throat> what is the, necess the necessity for the misdemeanor? Uh, can can the 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 police already or someone from the, the department move somebody without the misdemeanor? No. Uh, what would happen currently on the infraction is that the officer would go up and uh, the police officer would go up and ask the person to clear space for passage. If they refuse to, then they would issue basically a traffic citation. You know, it's a sign at the bottom, and we'll see you at Caramel or Justice Center and pay a fine. Uh, there's no way unless they refuse to sign the citation. There's no way for the police department to move that individual. So they they would stay in, they'd just be there, they'd still be there, and the cops might come by the next day and issue them another traffic citation. <laughs> and then they'd still be there, so. And, and I think that, the, you know, to one point, the, the constant fining um, to people who have little means anyways, I, I think that that in itself doesn't achieve anything either. I mean, the idea of just putting a fine is, uh, I think, uh, unproductive either. But we're talking, I think, and if I understand this correctly, maybe I'd like to hear Councilmember Harris on this because I know I've had experiences in our own council district here. Uh, this this essentially is intended to uh, come into effect 
in the situation when a person is unwilling and, and needs to be compelled to be moved, when they're blocking an entrance to a business or a driveway. And uh, if I can think of scenarios that have happened in, uh, in my district, both in the commercial corridor side where it is retail or storefront businesses or even service center locations where people are trying to access services or in the industrial area where we have large freight, heavy vehicles and, uh, and definitely significantly large turning radiuses. And so the, the, and when you have camps that impede those areas, it becomes extremely dangerous, not, not only to the, the drivers, but more so for the folks who are, you know, uh, are, are in the space uh, with their belongings. So I think uh, if, if, correct me if I'm wrong, back to my question here, is um, my understanding is that this ordinance and the use of changing it from an infraction to a misdemeanor is to actually compel someone to move. Is that is is that correct? And I'll, maybe I'll ask uh, both uh, Councilmember Harris and, and Mr. Brennan to respond to that. Do you want me to go, Councilmember? Yeah, go ahead, Mike. Uh, so yes, it, it would. I just want to clarify: this is not compelling them to move. All this is doing is compelling them to allow passage so the camp can stay in the same place we're just asking for four the four feet on the sidewalk and four feet from the door the camp is allowed to stay we're just asking them to move their personal belongings to allow free passage by uh pedestrians and bicyclists and so forth um and yes the, the misdemeanor would allow would compel would allow us to compel them to move as compared to the current infraction so council member if i might take a shot at that as well look i can tell you from personal experience over the last six years, that there are numerous homeless people who are willing to be good neighbors and there are num numerous homeless people who are not. In the River District, it's pretty extreme and you can see from that video, we have dealt with particular individuals over and over again who simply thumb their nose at us when being asked to move. Uh, you know, I, I think it's just really time for this council to acknowledge that we have people living on the street who have basically become entitled and feel that they are above the law, that they need not comply with an ask, let alone a demand or a ticket. We have issued citations. Uh, people do not show up for the court date. They don't pay their fines. And every time that we do that and let somebody thumb their nose, if you will, at, at, at our system, and our polite ask to just simply create a safe passage, uh, the problem compounds. That's why it needs an enforcement component. It is not to, I mean, it's not our desire to take people to jail. That's, as Katie said, very expensive. And it's not productive. But the fact of the matter is, we need a tool to modify behavior. And there are some very significantly illegal and dangerous behaviors on the street. And if we, if we don't acknowledge that, I, I can tell you that, uh, you know, our, our constituents are very frustrated with the council for not just saying what it is on the streets and enabling the council and our city staff to have the tools to manage in place. The last thing I wanna tell you is Bridget Dean asked me to bring this ordinance forward. She sees it as a valuable tool in the work that she does Look, we have to admit it. We don't have enough emergency spaces or housing for all the homeless individuals on our streets, and we're not going to have those spaces or the housing anytime in the near future. 
The reality is we have to manage in place. That's what Bridget calls it, managing in place. Uh, you know, until such a time as we can free up enough money in housing and use the 100 acres in the South area, use whatever means we have to create safe camping, safe parking, services, and a pathway to housing. Until we can get there, we simply have to deal with what we see on the streets. And that's what this ordinance is about. Thank you. Well, one last question here. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Madam City Attorney, but uh, the uh, as misdemeanors go, you uh, and your office would also be able to be the, the community uh, prosecutor in this instance. It wouldn't have to go to the district attorney's office for them to be involved in this aspect. You can manage it locally. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. It's a city code violation, so it's the city attorney's office that would prosecute uh, any actions. We also have the ability, in, and frequently do this, where we uh, reduce it to an infraction um, if the circumstances warrant it, and uh, uh, so, so that falls completely within our jurisdiction. So I think there's a there's a lot of flexibility that that, that uh, the options here and allows for multiple tools to look at the scenario and whether uh, an issue is, a, uh, is egregious or not. But also, I guess my, my, my here is uh, my, my focus and, and direction is to also not be punitive here. So I think what, what we're trying to achieve here is uh, impacts the quality of life, safety, access. I think those are the important things. So Thank you, Madam uh, City Attorney, for that question, and uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Mr. Harris, did you want to speak again? Yes, please. Um, so, so here's the deal. Katie has introduced the motion. It doesn't have a second. If it does have a second, then I want to introduce a substitute motion to pass this to council as is and deliberate this as the full body. This is an important issue, and I think it needs that hearing. Uh, so... That, Chair, it's up to you. If, let me run the meeting and we'll, we'll yeah, get to Yeah, get it's to just it. how you choose to do it. Okay, thank you. Katie? Thanks. Um, I have a question for Susanna. I mean, I guess I'm a little confused by uh, Mr. Binner's assertion right now that there's nothing we can do under current core to compel, under the current code to compel people to move if they're blocking four feet of sidewalk. Because I was under the impression that sidewalks were covered by the critical infrastructure ordinance. Am I missing, misinterpreting our current tools? Uh, no, this is uh, this ordinance, which already existed and predated the critical infrastructure ordinance, uh, exists as it was, and uh, but it is analogous to the critical infrastructure ordinance. What is in front of you today, which is simply a balancing of the uses of, of city infrastructure, and so it doesn't. While it doesn't uh, completely prohibit, as Mr. Benner said, some sidewalks, which there is the ability to have four feet clearance even though an encampment is there, uh, in those areas where you have less than that, then uh, you cannot block it. And so uh, they're not, sidewalks itself are not currently included in the critical infrastructure. So this, this would complement that and make sure that they were covered. Okay, I guess um, 
<laughs> yeah, I, I'm a little befuddled by some of the framing here. And so I want to just get like super tailored because we're using a lot of broad strokes narrative about addressing the homelessness crisis. And I just want to be super specific that this ordinance is going to do nothing broadly about this other than really target folks that are not leaving four feet of passable space on a sidewalk or at an entrance to a doorway. And so this isn't some grand sweeping, you know, passing this today doesn't mean that downtown Sacramento is not going to have any more camps in downtown Sacramento. It just means that in certain limited instances, folks are going to be required to move. So I don't want us to say this is about saying that what's happening right now on the streets is okay, because none of us, absolutely none of us, I'm speaking for myself, think that what is happening on our streets right now is okay. And I feel very confident speaking for almost everybody who has called in tonight on both sides of this issue today. And then nobody on this line thinks that what's happening on the street is okay. And I really wish we would stop saying that because I think what the devil in the details here is really how do we approach this problem in the most effective, expedient, humane way possible, right? Like we're all trying to solve the same problem, trying to figure out how to get there. Nobody has any problem with ADA. I did not hear anybody calling in here who says it's super great that folks in wheelchairs might not be able to go on the sidewalk. So I don't want anybody to leave this meeting or continue to characterize the concern with this ordinance as that because that is absolutely not what's going on here. The real question is, how do you use the most effective tool? If someone gets an infraction today and says, forget it, I'm going to go back to the spot, forget it, I'm not going to move, there is nothing about a misdemeanor other than maybe giving us an additional tool to move them in that moment that's going to keep somebody from returning to that same spot. They still might not show up for court. They still might not do what they need to do because we are not, they have no place else to go, right? And so and maybe I'm speaking more broadly and Susanna, I see you raising your hand. I'd love to get, because I guess we all, there's a resource question here on the one hand, right? Of like, how do we do outreach to work with folks? And are there a few folks that are gonna say no anyways? Yes. And so I guess I'm trying to figure out, Susanna, why is, is a misdemeanor the only way we get at those few folks that say, no, I'm not moving. I'm gonna keep coming back. And there's nothing in this that keeps them from coming back. I mean, we would just issue a new misdemeanor again. It's not like we can fence off the sidewalk, right? So I guess I'm trying to get to what is the most effective tool here for that limited instance that we're naming of folks who refuse to move, even when they're asked not to, even when they're cited. So maybe, Susanna, before you answer, let me just add a couple things in, in my thoughts, and you can probably answer them all together. Um, so clearly, we, we have a challenge here. And, and I have uh, lots of locations in my district that are witnessing or, or experiencing the same types of problems. If you look at you know, under the freeway at under 99 at Broadway, if you look on X Street, we're on one side of the street, uh, there's no sidewalk. And on the other, when Caltrans came in and swept everyone there, they just all moved across the street and we have no sidewalk left whatsoever in front of the shelter. So it, it's clearly a, a challenge and a problem that we all experience. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the enforcement piece. And I, I'm I think there's some really good points that have been made, but I don't know if it's Susanna, it's you, or it's Michael, or it's it's Deputy Chief Leong who's here, but walk me through the steps of enforcement and why we chose, unless it's just because it's a misdemeanor, why we chose $250 when we've just gone through this, you know, fines and penalties exercise over the last couple of years, where we know it doesn't it doesn't really work uh, in a lot of ways. It just puts people in a more desperate situation. I mean, we're finding people who are already living in a tent. I'm not sure what we're gonna do with that. Um, so I, I agree that it's a problem. And, and frankly, I'm gonna, if the motion is with staff recommendation, I'm gonna vote for it. 
but I, I want to continue to have the conversation at um, council, and I'm hoping that we can come up with some alternatives uh, before this comes to council around the enforcement. But please walk me through it, and what do we do when people say no, um, and, and how do we really think this is going to happen when we, we have so few resources? Um, yes, uh, Chair and, and Councilmember Valenzuela, I'll start out uh, the answers and then turn it over. And I think, you know, may, uh, Captain Leong or Deputy Chief Leong can respond as well. Um, well this picture is smiling, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons why the situation um, is, is so overrun right now as far as our sidewalks being so covered and us un being unable to uh, keep... Uh, sufficient egress for people to walk on or for businesses to use it. One of those reasons, however, is that the city currently doesn't have the ability, law enforcement, code enforcement doesn't have the ability to move individuals because our sidewalk ordinance only makes it an infraction. And so even if tickets are issued, um, uh, uh, and which is a which is a requirement to appear. So if they don't appear, Carol Miller, they do get a, a warrant issued for them. Uh, but uh, if they're able to move them, which is the goal, to move them to create the space so that the sidewalks can be traversed by the public, by pedestrians, or if anything else, at least have it a safe passage for motorists, for everybody else, then uh, that's the goal is to, is to create that space. And so. We can't do that with the way the ordinance currently reads right now. It needs to be a misdemeanor so that in those cases where the individuals refuse to move, then the city enforcement staff can take action to move individuals. Um, as a misdemeanor, just one thing I wanted to, to just uh, to add, Councilmember Valenzuela, we actually have the ability to, in our office, um, get what we call is a certain uh, probationary terms on that individual. We rarely if ever seek out any kind of a fine, it makes no sense. But we will ask that the court impose conditions on that individual to prevent that offense from rehappening. And that then is a probation to the court, it's informal. And if there's a future uh, a violation, for example, if they keep coming back or they re they're, they're continuing to repeat the offense, then there's a little bit more ability then for um, enforcement staff to act. Uh, also with a misdemeanor, they do get the uh, public defender's office appointed, and so they have the ability to have an advocate on their behalf uh, working with us, and that frequently uh, creates very successful resolutions. They don't get that as an infraction, and instead those, those uh, failures to appear could add up. And so uh, with that, I'm going to turn it over. Uh, I don't know if you still need more information from our office or if you want to ask the police department to weigh in. Sure. Deputy Chief, do you want to weigh in on this one? Or Chief? Oh, we're blessed. Yeah, I think uh, Susanna was correct. I mean, there will be circumstances where we ask, and then uh, we may issue a citation that probably may not discontinue, and the misdemeanor allows us to um, take enforcement action beyond the citation. That's not our desired outcome, but there are times where that might be the resolution. And it might not be at that moment. It may uh, require more DCR outreach or other mitigating um, factors that we can try to get them to encourage them to leave. But um, that's what the misdemeanor allows for. So I guess, I guess what I would love to see is, are there other intermediate steps that could be taken that we could actually lay out before we get to the misdemeanor level? 
Well, I, th I think um, the citation is kind of the, after the, the request. Um, I think prior to us actually going out there, ideally DCR is doing some outreach to see if that person wants services, uh, just like we do for all the other uh, problem care. So we're not mandating that in the ordinance, correct? No, but that's not mandated even in our, um, what impact does for our larger encampments, but that's what we do, right? And so we spend uh, several weeks usually of kind of outreach, and I'm not saying that that's what we would do for someone blocking a sidewalk where we have uh, zero passability for someone in a wheelchair or school kids, but we should make that effort for outreach, um, ask for consent, uh, encourage that, and then uh, next steps would be citation. Okay. So, Mr. Garrett, do you want to say something? Yeah, I mean, I one uh, that that is the current standard practice. I mean, I to, there was a point where there was a, an entire encampment who that took over the entire sidewalk and the bike lane on Stockton Boulevard. DCR went out there and moved folks well beforehand, even though that is still a, a current violation. Um, even in, uh, and, um, and and so I think that's the standard practice already. We go out there and do the outreach. Uh, now, to the, the language here, um, to Councilmember Chenier's point about a lot of the work that we've been doing here in the city on fines and fees, um, why, why is it necessary in Section C then to have this uh, range of 250 to 25,000 for each day of the violation, when in Section A we already uh, set a, a number of uh, remedies through criminal sanctions, civil action, administrative penalties, why couldn't the language just say, um, you know, uh, uh, civil penalties and administrative penalties versus doing this, this range of, uh, of, of numerical fines? I mean, is it is that necessary or is that boilerplate or, or is that something that's used in general law? I mean, can someone explain that of why that Section C is drafted in that form? Susanna, do you want me to go? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is that it's boilerplate and already exists it, in the code. Well, it it's it comes from uh, Chapter 1.28 from the Administrative Penalties section of the city code. Um, I just want to make sure that everyone's clear that this applies to the way that businesses operate on the sidewalks, too. So that could – look, no one's out to, to find encampments with uh, unhoused individuals. That's not the goal here. That doesn't accomplish right. anything. Right, right. But it does give us the tools to work against businesses that are in violation of the code, too who are using the sidewalks, you know, to market stuff that they shouldn't be marketing on the sidewalks, blocking the sidewalk, et cetera. And if the direction from the committee today is uh, for us to, you know, amend that or look at that or come up with alternatives before it comes to the council, we can certainly do that. Um, you know, because it may be this is something that you want to make sure that the businesses that oper operate on the sidewalk, you know, also don't have heavy penalties. No, no fair point, okay. Well, uh, I just, I, it just seems to me that uh, if, if we've, we already have a code section that has a number of remedies, um, and then this is particular for that, then it should just, it should just include the, uh, the civil penalties in that remedy. So, but I, I just wanted to, wanted to know if that was boilerplate or not. Ms. Valenzuela. Thanks, Chair. Um, recognizing the, the tone of the committee here, um, I mean, happy to withdraw my motion. I think for me, what would make it 
more comfortable to me is if we could codify the outreach expectations in this ordinance before. So like saying, hey, you got to move and now I'm citing you is not sufficient. I think we could set like a minimum number, right, of contacts, give people time because sometimes they have belongings that maybe are their only things and they want to find a place to store them. And maybe they're like, well, I want, like, I'll try to shift, but I can't do it right now. I need to go buy a new tent that has a smaller footprint. Or there could be a lot of reasons why we walk up to somebody and say, move right now. And they're going to say no, that are very reasonable. And so I'd like to test the will of the committee here in terms of at least adding a requirement um, that the Department of Community Response or some designee conduct outreach at least like a certain number of hours before we come back and say, okay, now it's time to set you and kind of see what folks think about that. I would prefer there not be misdemeanors, as you can tell from my, my general line of questioning. But if this is where this is going, I'd like to at least put the onus on us to conduct more sufficient outreach and education before we ever get to this set and codify that, not questioning what Deputy Chief said in terms of common practice, but just wanting to make sure that this is protected for future generations to know what the expectation is before we reach that step. Okay. Mr. Harris, do you want to make a motion here? Yeah, I do. I'd like to move the staff report as is to council and we can, we can hash over all this stuff. And I think that staff has heard the concerns of the committee and bring back other suggestions to a full discussion at council. The last thing I want to say is that it is a salient point, and it is true that this is not a homeless ordinance. This is a sidewalk ordinance, and it does apply to businesses. In fact, I got a complaint just this morning about uh, demonstrators who were occluding a sidewalk and um, causing the same kinds of problems as far as you know, people being able to access sidewalks safely. So it is encompassing more than homeless encampments. It was always intended to because it is our sidewalk ordinance. So that's my motion to take staff uh, recommendation as is, move it to council and continue the debate there. So could we, could we add into that direction to staff to come up with a series of protocols that the council could look at alongside the ordinance when that comes to the, the council? Yeah, I would accept that. Okay. So I'll go ahead and second based on that. Um, Mr. Garrett, you have a comment? Yeah, I was going to second and also um, to, to mention that point about, you know, what what kind of uh, putting in the process there. I, I just caution that if we are too prescriptive um, you know, in in that, then then we limit our ability on on how to do the outreach. So I that that I think the prescriptiveness and and what steps need to be taken when we're going to codify something in code. We just need to be cautious in, yeah. in the development of that. Uh, the other thing that I'll point out also that is a concern to me is, um, uh, and why I think this outreach piece is important is because we do have many food vendors that are out there. And uh, many times they, they sometimes will choose locations that, uh, that do take up a big chunk of the sidewalk. Now, we also wanna make sure that, uh, that you know, we're giving them proper notice and all, all of a sudden not levying an immediate $250 to $25,000 fine for someone who's trying to also make a living, you know? So, um, so I think the important thing ab about how we craft this, Susanna, is one, it's good direction for the future on, on what the process is, but also making sure we're, you know, even, even food vendors sometimes block roadways and access points. And, and so that, that, that's a problem, you know? So I think, uh, um, uh, but, but we want to be cautious about the, the, the fine part here as well. So um, I'm glad to support it now with that second, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Chair, as long as, uh, as uh, the city attorney also understands that I'll, 
the, how we craft the the process is not be too prescriptive where it, where it locks in our uh, how we respond to different scenarios. So my, my assumption and hope is that the city attorney's office will work with DCR to find the best way to do it. And that would be the most effective. We'll take that direction. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Council Member Valenzuela, and then we'll go ahead and vote. Yeah, thank you, Chair. I just wanted to make a comment before the vote that I'm going to abstain from this vote. And again, to keep reiterating, because my words keep getting twisted in different contexts, I'm not voting going to abstain because I don't think that maintaining EDA access is critical on sidewalks and at entrances. I just think the details on how we do this that we've discussed here today are really important. And we've given some very broad guidance, and I'm kind of trying to reserve the ability for me to see what that looks like and have further engagement before I say that I'm on board with us moving forward with these changes. So thank you, Chair. No, that's that's totally fair, and um, and this is primarily about homelessness. I mean, we we can call it anything we want, but at the end of the day, the problem is even if we move people, where are they going to go? And it's the same question that we come back to over and over again. Uh, I would disagree with some of the speakers about the effort that we put in, both resources and person hours, um, but uh, we'll continue to do that. So with that. Uh, we have a motion and a second with direction. Uh, Madam Clerk, please call the roll. Thank you. Councilmember Guerra? Aye. Councilmember Harris? Aye. Councilmember Valenzuela? Abstain. And Chair Chenier? Aye. All right. We'll, we'll pass this on uh, with a 301 vote uh, to the council to take up. Um, and maybe. Um, I guess for the city attorney's office to work with Mr. Harris's office around timing uh, for this. And, and I would appreciate um, being able to take a look at it before it gets to council, I think, um, as chair here. And, and I, I would think uh, all of our colleagues would like the same ability. All right, let me, let me just ask a question. We have two more items. Uh, Madam Clerk, where are we on public comment on the next item? I currently have no hands raised to make public comment. Let's see. And I know Mr. Guerra has Here. a hard stop at three o'clock. Are we good to go for another hour or so here? So you currently have six hands raised. Okay. All right, so um, let's get through this one. We'll see if we need to. And, and I, I think when we talked about this originally on the agenda, we, we weren't quite sure we'd make it through all three, but We'll give it a shot here. So, um, Mr. Leong, I think this is probably you or, or Chief Lester. Yes, sir, it's going to be me. Okay. Uh, and we'll tell people that um, also the same rules will apply as far as public comment. So, after the second speaker goes, we'll close the roll at that point. But go ahead. All right. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Deputy Chief Norman Leong. Today, we're here presenting what will be an annual process for the department to request, to request to repeal the prior year's ordinance and implement a new one, which approves our military equipment use. Assembly Bill 481 in 2021 requires that law enforcement agencies obtain approval from the applicable governing body by adoption of a military equipment use policy. The bill also requires the department to submit an annual report. As you may recall, in March, we came before the committee with an amendment to the December 21st, um, 2021 policy. The amendment was due uh, to inadvertently not including several items 
due to the urgency to get the ordinance passed. It was our understanding, um, based on interpretation of law, that we had to have an ordinance passed by January in order to use the equipment. Through the process, however, we were able to now build a tracking mechanism to our equipment policy that allows for more accurate accounting and reporting. At the March Long Ledge meeting, the committee requested us to conduct public input and add some clarity to the use of each of the equipment. Due to the timing of coming back to the committee, we are today bringing before you our yearly uh, military use policy and include, included is also the annual report. Since the March committee meeting, the department worked with the city clerk's office and conducted a online community survey. Through the outreach, we received 1,274 replies and comments. We addressed numerous concerns made by the people that had comments, including adding mutual aid component to our policy, adding language to every equipment use in reference to AB 48, which is now Penal Code 13652, which limits police use of projectiles and chemical agents during protests. Um, amongst the people that uh, requested that addition was uh, the League of Women Voters. We added language to assure that the specific policies that govern use of each equipment were included so that anyone can go to our transparency page to view the limitations, the laws and policies governing each equipment use. This was a common theme of believing the use was limitless. We also took that language of not limited to at the recommendation of organizations like ACLU. It is important to note, as this committee discussed, that the military use policy is not our use of force policy, and the department is constantly reviewing and editing all our policies connected to both the use of force, use of various equipment based on our current case law and best practices. We added dollar amounts and items that we may purchase since this is our intended annual process, which we have identified both the cost and possible purchases this up upcoming year. So within our annual request, we will, um, we will propose possible purchases um, and get approval um, from council prior to purchasing. That was one of the comments made by the community. Other comments about the policy were things that were required to report um, in our annual report, so uh, there was uh, comments regarding uh, documenting when we use certain equipment and whether there were any policy violations uh, with the use, and that will always be within our annual report. Um, uh, the last comment um, that we took into consideration and we want to clarify, there were several comments on that people didn't think the police department should be purchasing military equipment. So it's important to note that the law governs what was military equipment. A lot of the items listed are commercial use items that anyone can buy, um, such as our command post is just an RV that's been outfitted for our purpose and use on the interior. Um, our drones or our UAVs are ones that you can go to Best Buy or Costco to purchase yourself. So they're not militarized equipment but they're listed as such within the law. In the staff report, I've noted that this annual, uh, the annual possible fist impact is 598,000. Due to the way the law is written, we must obtain pre-approval to purchase the items. As such, the, of the 598,000, 408 is what we 
or anticipating and hoping to get from grant funding to purchase our roof, which is really a armored uh, forklift that allows a better platform during tactical situations. The, the other purchases, the other 198 are uh, replenishing supplies of certain items we've used and then possible anticipated purchases such as new uh, UAVs or drones um, to replace older models that we have or broken ones that we have. The, the department um, on average will come before uh, both law and ledge and the council uh, with about 125 to 175,000 expenses um, that are just kind of what we annually purchase to uh, resupply our uh, equipment. So should the uh, law and ledge move this before council, um, the next steps will be that we'll hold three community meetings uh, to talk about the military use equipment. That will allow, uh, in addition to our survey, uh, to place input, but to then to have discussions uh, with police managers and personnel about the actual policy itself before we go back to council, hopefully in August. And that concludes my presentation. Thank you. Uh, Chief Lester, do you wanna add anything before we go to public comment? Thank you, council member. Um, I just want to say that the team that uh, Deputy Chief Leong has brought here is able to answer any questions. They've done a ton of work on this policy and have adopted a number of the recommendations that were made by Law and Ledge, including the significant outreach that we did to the community. Captain Marnie Steigerts is in the process of preparing all of those public comments um, for publication on our transparency website so that you can actually read through them. And I wanna thank Deputy Chief Leong for clarifying what military equipment is because I do think there's a misunderstanding um, between what is military equipment and what the law says. The law has been um, very expansive in what they define as military equipment, but just because it's listed as military equipment does not mean it's from the military or militarized. So I just wanna make sure that we're clear and thank you for allowing me to add to that. Okay, thank you. Let's go ahead to uh, public comment. Thank you, Chair. The first, the first speaker is Lois Melher. Lois Meller. Is it Louise Melher? Diane Rosenblum. I'm here. I'm here. I found the big button. Okay. Go ahead, Louise. Okay, I thank the committee for this opportunity to comment and appreciate the effort and attention that have gone into updating this policy. Nevertheless, it still seems that the policy does not engage with the fact that it addresses devices designed to harm people. We expect our police to make every effort to avoid arming the people with whom they come in contact even obvious malefactors should be brought in good health to face justice in a court of law. We need policies and procedures that recognize the danger of visit and use of weaponry and that provide guidance in minimizing risk. This is especially true of equipment designated for crowd control. Crowds are not some kind of alien manifestation. They are composed of human beings, the very people police are supposed to protect and serve. Much if not all of the material identified for riot slash crowd control is inappropriate for people exercising their First Amendment rights and should be limited to actual riots. 
In particular, using the warning tone of long-range acoustic devices has been held to constitute excessive force in proximity to protests. I'm particularly concerned with the proposal to acquire an armored critical incident vehicle known as the Rook. If Sacramento really needs such a menacing and expensive vehicle, it should be easy to recall incidents in which it would have been helpful and to describe the difficulties of that occasion. Also, warrants should be required before deploying equipment to gather information in places where people ordinarily enjoy privacy. In short, I want a policy designed from the opposite perspective from this one. Each device, the initial question should be, how might this harm the citizenry and what limitations will minimize the damage? Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Diane Rosenblum? Can you hear me? We can. Hello? We can. Diane Rosenblum? Policy in response to community comments. The proposed policy still falls short in several ways, and the committee should send it back to the department to amend it. The proposed uses of the long-range acoustic devices, LRADs, has contradictory information. They're hailing devices for speaking from a long distance, but can also issue an extremely high-pitched warning tone, leading to permanent hearing loss. The LRAD is only authorized for use as a communication device, it says on page 40, but on page 79 it states that the use of LRAD shall comply with General Order 580.17, and that General Order, which was last updated in 2017, states that the LRAD warning tone is safe for use against crowds or individuals. It must be updated to indicate that it is not to be used as a warning tone. The use report included in the last 92 pages of this document, which is meant to show the military equipment use between December and April, does not list how and when the equipment was deployed as required in the law AB 481. The intent of the law was to report on existing military equipment and its use in our community. It's not an appropriate place to be asking for counsel for more military equipment, especially things like the Rook. The Rook is an armored bulldozer capable of destroying walls of houses and transporting five snipers who can fire from gun ports in an armored platform. Because of the extreme militarized nature of the Rook, the city council should not approve its acquisition. It will traumatize neighborhoods and it is completely unnecessary for our city terrain and expensive to maintain. And lastly, the proposed policy doesn't identify who or what will exercise independent oversight over the policy. AB 481 requires this. Sacramento has a community police review commission. Why is that citizen-led commission not named as the independent oversight entity? Thank you so much. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker is Christina Rogers. Hi. Um, if police are not allowed to protect themselves or others against a violent or life-threatening situation, we are all completely lost. I believe police should have access to both non-lethal and lethal tools. I just took a VR simulation training to experience what officers can go through and believe a lot of civilians should do this. It's not like anything a civilian thinks it is. Seemingly simple situations can turn deadly in a hot second. I believe in police accountability. I also believe when we give someone a job where their life is at risk, we should provide the tools to survive those situations. For those who say it's an officer's job and they know the consequences, give it a rest. 
We don't ask firefighters to run into burning buildings without the proper gear. They understand the risks of their job, but they go in with the proper tools and training, so hopefully they won't get burned. Many of us know who oppose this belong to the groups who want to defund and dismantle the police department. I've heard them say we can police ourselves. Reality check, without officers, honey, no one else is gonna step up and protect you. To believe we can police ourselves is a joke. I can get, barely get my neighbors to mow their lawns. If you want better policing, then lean in and work with officers and treat them like the human beings and community members they are. That includes ensuring they have the tools to do their job efficiently. I support this. Our officers can't be reduced to using marshmallows and kittens because some civilians think they understand law enforcement better than those who actually live it every day. Thank you very much. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker is Graciela Castillo-Krings. Good afternoon, Mr. Chair and Council Members. My name is Graciela Castillo-Krings. I am the Chair of the Sacramento Community Police Review Commission. I have submitted to the committee my letter and the proposed changes that the Commission provided to the Police Department on May 20th. I wanted to update this body about the productive conversation I had with Lieutenant Galliano, the Commission's PD liaison. During this call, I was informed that additional public info will be solicited, and we have a commitment that we are going to sit down with the Sacramento Police Department to go over the suggested changes in further detail. I hope that this collaboration will lead to the changes that will strengthen this general order and fully reflect the committee's input before the city. this item goes to the City Council for a vote. I appreciate the collaboration and look forward to additional discussions. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker is Nikki. Yeah, hi folks. Um, I'm just, I wonder, I do wonder about uh, this mishap around compliance year after year and seeing that still even what's brought forward, sure, many, many pages in the report, but I still fail to see what's substantially, substantially different um, about your department's intention when using these um, like tools, as you call them, and weapons uh, than it was, you know, two years ago when many, <clears throat> many bodies were indiscriminately broken, uh, skulls cracked, um, so on, people blinded, so on and so forth. Uh, because of the way that you used um, these uh, so-called less lethal weapons, and in terms of this being a yearly report, um, I feel like you, you, you all mostly talked about um, about the report existing and about getting to the report, but you didn't really report mm -hmm. on anything. And so I feel like uh, really hearing what what is actually different about the use, how are you gonna not harm uh, myself and the people uh, that are in the streets, um, rightfully upset with um, the the state of society for any reason and right now you know it's been police brutality but it could be any number of things it could be things like when we're running out of water or food or when it's too hot um you know there's there's quite a lot of forward looking and to think that these are the tactics you're going to use on us um i yeah i i fail to see how you are not going to cause us harm in the future thank you for your comments next speaker is corinne mcintosh seiko Good afternoon, committee. My name is Dr. Kareen McIntosh Sacco, and I am a licensed psychologist in private practice. I'm also a community mental health advocate. I'm strongly opposed to the Sacramento Police Department acquiring any military equipment 
why would this committee allow military equipment used by its police department that's currently involved in a lawsuit that alleges police harassment and racist policing? A 2021 report found that while the department's use of force decreased from 2014 to 2019, Sacramento police officers are 4.5 times more likely to commit acts of force against black people. Allowing Sacramento Police Department to use military equipment jeopardizes the welfare of our community residences. The Rook is being described as an armored forklift and long range acoustic devices that cause permanent hearing loss are being described as equipment that anyone could obtain at Best Buy. This does not keep our community safe. Data shows that the communities with the most resources are actually the safest communities. If Sacramento police officers need military equipment to do their job, what is wrong with their training? In the last 164 years, there have only been 18 Sacramento Police Department officers killed. 12 of those were by gunfire and one was by friendly fire. Now in the last five years, Sacramento Police Department has killed six civilians and brutalized many, many more. And that's just the number we know about considering we haven't been tracking that over the same period of time. There's data to support that police departments with military equipment actually contribute to the traumatic stress that's experienced by our marginalized and over-policed communities. Please make your decisions informed by the data. Do not allow military equipment by Sacramento Police Department. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Keon Bliss. Hello, Law and Legislation Committee. Uh, I am the Vice Chair of the Sacramento's Community Police Review Commission and um, wanted to lift up uh, my chair's comments um, in needing uh, to have uh, deep discussions between the commission and uh, SPD before uh, this goes to full council body uh, as there are still several uh, recommendations that we have put before you all um, that are still uh, needing to be addressed. One of those in particular is uh, the need to add specific language that requires Sac uh, Sacramento Police Department to produce its, in its annual report Com comparative reporting and demographic reporting, including details related to where its military equipment and munitions were used, who its military equipment and munitions were used against, and what context its military equipment and munitions were being used. The, as it currently sits, the like, and given the city and SPD's uh, frequently mentioned uh, desire for having data-driven policies, uh, the current draft, as it appears, uh, is still vague in its reporting requirements and does not require SPD to actually provide annual metrics for how it uses its military equipment and where it's used. Uh, that's why we recommended this language. Um, so, as it stands, like, so as it stands right now, those are just one of the questions that we have that are still outstanding um, into whether that will be updated in this policy, and I would encourage you to add that. Another two is uh, now that uh, proposed annual procurement quantities are listed with their cost, do these procurements happen automatically at the end of each year, or is that still need city council approval? And if they like, if it does happen automatically, will this replace the existing UAS equipment, i.e. the equipment is no longer um, uh, capable of being used, or will it just simply continue to grow the current fleet of uh, un unmanned aerial service vehicles and robots every year without needing approval from city council? Um, again, and also want to note, too, that there it, it still does not list uh, in this policy. Thank you for your um, comments. Your time is complete. Will you make your final comment, please? 
Yes. Uh, also, we need to add specific language for the limits and conditions for which the military equipment and munitions cannot be used. And Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Ross. Hello. Can you hear me? We can. Hi. I'd like to kind of just echo everything that's been said that has opposed this disgusting, disgusting ordinance to give SAC PD uh, military-grade weapons. Um, and I know they had some fun, colorful language on, on what they meant. Um, armored forklift, um, you know, listening devices. It's all kind of just uh, uh, words. It's all just words um, that they're, they're trying to use to, to placate, to downplay the, the real issue here. Um, and the fact that they want more and more tools of destruction to use against the people um, in the time when we're talking about there's people living on the streets and where are we going to get the money and how come this is an issue in our society and, and why does our city look like this? And yet we have to sit here and listen to SACBD ask for armored forklifts and other things to do their job. What is their job? Is their job to invade foreign lands? Is their job to defeat terrorism, whatever that means? No, it's supposed to be protect and serve. And if you need an armored forklift to protect and serve this city, then your job has now become obsolete. It's obsolete. And just like Corinne said, so we're going to give these weapons and this money to the same to the same force that is under investigation for racist practices and, 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 and unlawful uh, um, injustices that literally left people blind to death. There's people who are blind because of what they did and what SAC sheriffs did. And we're sitting here asking ourselves, um, you know, scratching our head over X's and O's and saying, well, military-grade weapons doesn't really mean what you guys think. It really just means an armored vehicle that's a forklift that can have snipers around it. I mean, I, I really urge the city council to listen to what people were saying who opposed this, to listen to the data, but also listen to me when I'm saying this is a no-brainer decision. If your police department needs military-grade weapons, whatever that means, to protect to protect its citizens, then they're obsolete and we don't need them we need to focus on other things clearly like mental health like poverty like education this is absolutely disgusting and i cannot believe this is being considered thank you thank you for your comments and our final speaker is mackenzie wilson good afternoon folks uh, my name is mackenzie wilson i'm a community organizer and i call today Oh, I'm shaking about this this topic. I called today um, not only of taking bites and batons to my body at the hands of law enforcement officers, including Captain Norm Leon, but I want to speak to you about what happened to this community during the during 2020. When your law enforcement officers indiscriminately use all of these, and I can't even believe that you want to nitpick what is military-grade equipment or not, if it's in the law, then guess what, Captain Lester? That means that it is, in fact, military equipment. And the fact that your law enforcement officers use that indiscriminately against myself, my friends, our bodies, this community, and still have yet to have any ounce of accountability around it, y'all are in the middle of a lawsuit. And I can't even believe that the city tried to fight that lawsuit. Y'all are wrong. This has always been wrong. And I still can't believe that Officer Bugoji still has a job after he pointed at me and my friends. Because, and have you on this call, me and my friends, as, our, as, we were on the, as we were on the ground, hands up in the air, saying, hands up, don't shoot. And he shot us in the head, okay, with rubber bullets. Y'all have no accountability. There is nothing written into here that expresses it that, oh, I'm so shaking. 
Thank you for your comments. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Uh, let's go ahead uh, to the committee, uh, Councilmember Valenzuela. Thank you, Chair, and um, th thank you, Deputy Chief. I appreciate the opportunity to provide public comment and the workshops you're going to do. I guess you're judging by the amount of comments you've received in addition to the calls that this is a policy a lot of folks have a lot of thoughts on. So I am going to raise a line of questioning, and I apologize for not sending these to you in advance like I hoped I would be able to do. I just finished reviewing comments I received today. So um, I'm going to try to go in order in the policy here so that it's easy to follow. Um, so I'm going to start at the beginning when we talk about compliance on public complaints. So AB 481 says, um, ask us to define how the agency will ensure that each public complaint concern or question is responded to in a timely manner. And all our policy says is a response to the question or concern shall be completed by the department in a timely manner with no mention of how. So I'm wondering if maybe a point of contact within the department or a time frame or some sort of like better definition, because the law clearly says that it's the how are we going to respond to in a timely manner, not just that we're going to respond to in a timely manner that should be included in the policy. I don't know if you want to comment on that or I could keep going. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if we have a specific time frame, but our goals usually reply kind of within that work week to most inquiries. Uh, we have several different mechanisms to complain. As you know, we have an internal affairs section. We have OPSA that um, takes complaints and then forwards them to the police department. And then uh, within the annual report, and I believe within the policy, we have the email to our um, PSU unit who drafts the policy and can answer questions directly related to the policy. Um, so that's the mechanisms of which. Okay. I guess to be compliant with the law, it would be great if we could add a little more to that section on the how, um, just to ensure that, because it's, you know, just saying timely manner isn't um, quite what they were asking for. And so it'd be great to put some more detail in there before this comes back to council. Maybe that's an opportunity for public input um, around how the public can maybe reply again or do something if, if they're not getting a response, um, what they feel in a timely manner. Um, I will also echo the concerns um, looking at the annual report that the concern, the desire for more detail, um, not just on the general context of how and how many times it was used, but really more detail on how, when, where, against whom, you know, weapons were used so that we can have more of that data to inform hopefully more prevention strategies, but in general to understand trends of use would be really helpful. And specifically in AB 48, there is a requirement that I noticed wasn't in our policy that whenever we use kinetic or chemical weapons that we put a public report out within 60 days and they have an exemption for 90 days if that's an additional 30 days is necessary. Have you looked into that and will you be including that in the future draft policy? So um, Lieutenant Greg Galliano uh, indicated that that's actually in our First Amendment policy. And I think the challenge um, for, for many of the community members is that we have so many different policies. And so a lot of these governing things are in different policies. This, the requirement of, of this report and this policy wasn't to include every single policy in detail and so what we did was we referenced the policies related to each of the equipments so that the public can go to those policies, read through them. And, and that's why like even the time frame um, question is we, we see in a timely manner and we do mean that. And I think we do a fairly good job of responding to people in a timely manner. But to like say like within 24 hours, it may not be realistic based on our staffing and the demands of our investigative staff. But um, I, I would say that, you know, it is within a reasonable period of time once someone calls in. 
No, I appreciate all of that. I guess I just want to make sure we're complying with state law. And the law very clearly says that the manner of how we will respond in a timely manner is important and it's missing in this. And so I don't say it has to be 24 hours, but there should be some general guidance on when they could expect a response and how they would contact the department again if they haven't gotten a response in what we have defined to be a timely manner. I don't think it, I've used days and hours as an example, but I think whatever we define that as, that is state law, as is the requirement for a 60-day notification on AB 48. So that's not something we're going to change in a use of force policy, that's state law. So some of these things I understand because we talked about this last time, we don't need to put everything in this policy, but there are some things that we're not going to change because there's state law that we should put in this policy so that it's clear because I haven't gotten are seeing any 60-day notices within AB 48. And so I think this might be a change that we just need to make sure that the department is implementing in the manner prescribed by the law. All right. Okay. So my next batch here is um, section C2. There's a clause in there that's new that says, in the event exigent circumstances arise, it may be used unless prohibited by law. My interpretation of this sentence and the interpretation of some of the members of the public is that this is giving permission for people who aren't trained on equipment to use it. Is that your interpretation so, as well? So because of the dynamic nature of law enforcement, and critical incidents, we build it out a caveat. So let me give you an example. In the tragic incident of Tara Sullivan where she was shot, a armored vehicle was brought in to try to do a rescue. If the officer driving that vehicle had been shot and the only other person in that vehicle had not been trained to drive that vehicle, we don't wanna preclude that. And by exigent, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about a everyday protest or something like that, but in circumstances where an emergency situation arises and the person, uh, let's say even maybe not trained in the use of pepper ball gun for whatever reason, like a CSO. And it, it is the difference between an officer with a lethal weapon versus a less than lethal weapon. We'd prefer that the person try to use the less lethal weapon. And so there are so many factors and circumstances that could occur that maybe I can't even think of right now. Yeah. That want to give a carte blanche, you can't, right? Because I'd rather someone jump in that vehicle and drive that vehicle to protect other officers with the armor than say, oh, you can't do that by policy and law. Okay, I guess I also see the other side of the risk of using that equipment when you're not trained to. So what if, for example, an officer jumps into the armored vehicle to drive it forward, doesn't know how to operate it and can't stop and accidentally like runs into somebody or runs people over other officers, perhaps. I mean, so I guess there's there's sort of a give and take here in terms of equipment of like appreciating and maybe we just need to further define exigent because exigent to me could be in the field interpreted in a myriad of ways. Like I want this to be essential life or death use. If someone's saying I'm picking up a rifle that I haven't been trained to use and I'm going to fire, because not only could they be injured, but they might accidentally hurt additional people, which would defeat the purpose of allowing them to use that when they aren't trained to in the first place. Does that make sense? Yes, council member. I think, um, well, law kind of defines what exigency is for officers, but the reality is whenever we use any kind of force, it's being reviewed multiple times within our agency. And if it is a non-exigency based on the totality of circumstances of that situation, then it'll be a violation of the policy anyway. Okay. All right. Um, Long-range acoustic devices. When we talked about this, you all talked about a general order change forthcoming on eliminating the use of warning tones. Is that still in the works? Yes. So um, we heard the community and we heard uh, various council members. Um, and so we are uh, 
amending the policy as we speak and, and getting it done to eliminate the use of that tripping sound. So we will use it only as a PA system. Okay. Thank you. That's a really good and welcome change. Um, now, jumping down into rifles, I see that we own 322 AR-15 semi-automatic rifles. Can you explain to me why that's essential use in a civilian setting? Yeah, it kind of came, uh, most police agencies, uh, if you remember the LA bank robbery, uh, where the officers were outgunned, uh, where uh, I think there was three or two armed individuals with uh, automatic rifles and full armor uh, robbed a bank and then got in a, a long shootout with LAPD officers. As a result of that, many agencies started uh, issuing rifles to its line-level staff so that we're not outgunned. In that case, you had uh, LAPD officers going to gun stores, breaking in and grabbing and acquiring uh, rifles so that they could at least try to stop the bad guys because they were fully armed. So uh, as a result of that, that, that's actually become a common practice nationwide. Okay, because that feels like an escalation if someone's meeting us with an AR-15 and we're shooting back with an AR-15, especially when we have armor-piercing grounds and sniper rifles and other things that would allow more precision, wouldn't that? So, so on a moving incident, your SWAT officers aren't just patrolling. And they, like, let's say a Saturday afternoon, they would all come from their respective houses, lights and sirens, have to grab, grab the armored car, the armored rounds, and stuff like the equipment they need to deploy. In a fixed situation, we would contain it, hopefully keep it within a residence or an area until SWAT arrives, and then they would take over. But take the LAPD bank robbery. It was an evolving thing where patrol officers responded first. And if you watch the video on that, many officers were shot. Um, upon arrival and they didn't have all they had were their handguns to shoot back at and they, it wasn't an impact it was hitting the bad guys but because the armor it wasn't stopping that i might i might add um that a, a, a caveat to having a rifle one of the things we don't no longer carry is a shotgun it's a wide range a rifle is a precise weapon um when you're using a rifle you're not spraying a, an area you are precisely using that weapon directly at the target that you are intending. Um, if anything, it's more precise than say a handgun, you can do it at a longer range um, and those sort of things. So having each of our patrol officers who are out there, the first ones to respond are, is the reason that we've acquired those and outfitted our patrol officers with um, rifles. Okay, thank you. And to give you kind of a more recent example where the officer's rifles, the patrol officer rifles were helpful is the Buffalo shooting where the suspect went into the grocery store and shot multiple people. Um, that person was also armed with a long rifle. And so they needed their rifles also to stop them. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, rifles in general, I understand. It's the semi-automatic AR-15s that um, I have a more probably philosophical issue with. Um, so thinking of rifle ammunition, so I counted 413,000 pieces of ammunition, but I couldn't count the armor piercing ammunition, which just said 58 boxes with no quantity, or the tactical grain, which just listed nine boxes without quantity. And I also couldn't tell if that price, which is 1,080 and um, 4,640 respectively, was per box or in total. Could you clarify? That's on, um, that's item nine and 10 on page 17. So the SWAT uh, sergeant's here. And he believes there's about 20 in each box. Okay. And is that cost, um, the cost listed here, is that in total or is that per box? I believe uh, what was the cost in quarters? 
Uh, the cost for one of them is forty six hundred forty dollars. Yeah, these are all for total costs. That's total cost. Okay, awesome. It would be um, helpful to get that clarified um, before we go out and do community outreach, so folks know exactly how much we're we're talking about. Um, thank you. I am really looking forward to the community workshops that you're planning to do. I'm really looking forward to seeing this come back to council with further revision. So I'll save the rest of my comments for then, and just um, we'll continue to work on these technical changes as we also continue to have this larger community discussion about what weapons folks feel we should and should not be using. Thank you, Deputy Chief. And then council member, I'll add that uh, your other comment was adding more specifics in our annual report. So because this is our first one, our intent is to start tracking uh, more specific uses to be able to list like dates and, and kind of general summary of what occurred. Awesome. And is there like a web page where I can see the AB48 reports for the kinetic weapons and the chemical agents? Uh, that, uh, uh, council member, we haven't had any yet since the passage of that law. Um, uh, that we are required to report. Oh, okay. I thought I saw some in the annual report, but maybe it wasn't under that. Uh, no, so first, so AP 48 requires that to be reported during a, um, during an assembly first, uh, first amendment situation or, okay. and we haven't had an incident yet where we have used chemical agents to require that. Uh, that being said, we are actively building a piece to our transparency site, um, that will include the AB 481 information along with this annual report and the uh, uh, policy, but we haven't had that incident yet for AB 48. Okay, great, thank you. Okay, Councilmember Guerra. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chair. Uh, first, I wanna thank you know Deputy Chief Norm Long and, uh, and uh, all of the team for taking the time to go through and walk through some of the community concerns that were brought up and how the Department responded to those concerns and adjusted the the policy here. Um, uh, you know, I'm uh, satisfied here and moving forward to the council. Uh, however, I, I do uh, I will make a motion to move this forward, but also with direction that the department meet with the police review commission um, to uh, discuss some of the reporting requirements uh, that were outlined in uh, Chair uh, Castillo Cringe's uh, letter on uh, more of the accountability, clarity, and data and demographics of, of how the, the the information is used. And I, Deputy Chief, I, I understand you just said that um, you, you all plan to put together a more robust, uh, you know, uh, reporting system for the public. And I, I think I think the fact that you're moving ahead of that is, is, a, is a positive thing um, with that. And I, I'll also just say that, you know, I think that the advent of technology and, and always looking at what are new tools that can help, you know, prevent loss of life, help, help prevent injury, and making sure that not only the, that the officers who show up to work are safe through the use of new technology, but also that the, the, any, anyone in the public and even the perpetrators at the time that are in this, these situations that we, uh, we uh, find better solutions. So, um, you know, some of these may be characterized as military equipment, but I think looking at technology in general can always provide uh, new approaches here. So with that, Mr. Chair, I'll go ahead and move the staff report with the direction that the department meet with the Police Review Commission on some of the accountability measures uh, before it comes to council here. Okay, uh, council member Harris. Yeah, thank you, chair. I'm very content to move this to council for a more protracted discussion. You know, when you use the word military equipment, it has a connotation for, for people 
Uh, that is usually negative. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I, I'm informed by certain incidents that uh, I've experienced alongside the police. For instance, the Tara O'Sullivan shooting where the Bearcat was used to try to protect Tara and was unfortunately unsuccessful, but that vehicle was virtually destroyed by the assailant. I remember when I was a uh, vice mayor, an item came to council for the purchase of a Bearcat and uh, objectors came into council, in fact, one spoke today, uh, who called us murderers and worse, just for even considering the use of purchasing a, a substitute Bearcat, uh, you know, to protect our officers. In, in the line of fire. You know, there's a lot of emotions on this issue. There's a lot of analyzing of events, you know, post their occurrence, and that's all fair. But, uh, you know, I would say that I actually agree with Christina Rogers' statements that it would be very informative for everybody to do, to do the use of force simulator to understand the intensity of incidents and the rapid fire decisions that police must make and if they are not well prepared with the proper equipment, more lives will be lost. That's my feeling. And uh, I've seen it. I've seen it in incidents that our PD have already addressed in real time. You know, I have no problem with people having angst about the idea of military equipment being used. Uh, you know, unmanned aerial systems are incredible systems to help us prevent using lethal force. So are some of the less lethal, lethal weaponry that is also categorized as military equipment. Uh, I think that this should go to council and I'm, I'm happy to support it. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you. Um, I, I think that's it. I, I, I just wanna um, say thank you to, to Norm and the department and the chief. Um, I know you've done a lot of work on this, you've listened. Uh, I think the three more public uh, meetings will be important and there's still more work to do. So with that, uh, we have a motion and a second. Madam Clerk, please call the roll. Chair, will you re reiterate who made the second? Uh, Mr. Harris. If I didn't say it out loud, I meant to, I, I do second Mindy. Thank you. Council Member Guetta? Aye. Council Member Harris? Aye. Council Member Valenzuela? Yes. And Chair Chenier. Aye. Okay, great. Let, let's go. Um, who's doing the presentation on the next item? Is it Mr. Hertel? Ms. Teller? Uh, yeah, it's me. How but long? We, <laughs> we recognize we're short on time. Um, I Our presentation is about six minutes, but I could give a sort of two-minute update, or we could also forego the presentation. We'll be back next month. I think what I would like, I think this is an important topic. Um, I don't imagine it would be a six minute item. So, and I know Mr. Aguirre uh, will be leaving soon. So why don't we put this off till next month? Okay. Where, I'm sorry to have made you stick around. It's okay. But, um, let's get to it where we can have a, a thoughtful discussion about it and not try to rush through. Sounds good. Okay, thank you. Thanks everyone. Um, yeah, I agree with you, Chair. This is an important item and it needs time to be heard. Okay, thank you. Um, so let's go ahead. Uh, any committee comments, ideas, questions, meeting reports? Seeing none, any public comments on matters not on the agenda? Madam Clerk? Chair, I have no hands raised to make comments for matters not on the agenda. Okay, well, you all have 
you all have one hour and eight minutes uh, before we go to closed session. So thank you very much. Uh, I thought very thoughtful discussions, important stuff. Is this, do we have one hand raised for, for uh, comments not on the agenda? I did one hand just raised, Davey Rodriguez. Okay, why don't we go ahead and hear that and then we will adjourn. Hello. Hello. Am I on? You are on. All right. Um, yes, as mentioned, my name is Savi Rodriguez. Mm. And uh, a few months ago, you, the city of Sacramento, passed an ordinance <clears throat> about the docks, and I brought up the issue that they um, passed an ordinance that made fishing illegal on those docks. And I want to, since this is law and legislation, I want to remind the law and legislation committee that they should read the state's constitution especially Article 1, Section 25, that specifically prohibits passing laws uh, prohibiting fishing on state land. And the Sacramento River is state land. And the only people that can open and close fishing is the State Fish and Game Commission, and they haven't done that. I call on this board to review the state constitution and then review that ordinance that you passed and come to the you'll have to come to the same conclusion that um, that ordinance is not in compliance with the state constitution state constitution and that the city council or the mayor or the city of sacramento has no authority to pass uh, laws that prohibit fishing on the docks as they, the city was granted those in the public trust and it is not private property. So please, I don't want to have to keep bringing this up, but I will. I'm not going to let this go. This is a, a hard fought constitutional rights been in there for 110 years, 110 years. And I don't think it was uh, carefully thought out when they passed this ordinance. I believe that it should be reviewed immediately. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Madam Clerk, if you could give Mr. Rodriguez's contact information to Mr. Ruyak from the attorney's office and he could contact him uh, and get a little bit more specifics, I think that would be important. Thank you. Mr. Rodriguez, will you stay on the line so I can get that information? Thank you, Chair. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, with that, uh, we'll see everyone in an hour. We're adjourned.